Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the Lord could not support the land, not the Lord, so that the, the Lord can support anyone. It, it, it cannot, anyway, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that, if no, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of our God stands Forever. So up to this point, uh, Jim mentioned it already, this narrative of Abram has been a bit of a roller coaster ride. We see him get called out of Ur in, at the beginning of chapter 12, right? God sets his favor, his grace upon an undeserving individual named Abram, calls him out. Abraham, Abram listens and follows and, and with, this, with this incredible promise that he's going to bless him and make him into a great nation, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abram. And you heard that again there at the end of this chapter, which we're not going to spend a bunch of time on that because this morning, where there's lots more to discuss, 
in chapter 13, but that's this repeated promise to Abram. And it's a very important promise that he is this one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of his descendant coming, who, spoiler alert, is Jesus. That is the descendant that is coming through the line of Abraham, through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But then we, at the end of chapter 12, we have this incredible disappointment. Uh, it turns out that walking with God, when it comes from our perspective, is not always so nice and clean. We want it to be that we just get more godly and more godly and more godly and more godly until we reach glory. And the reality is more like we have great moments of trusting God and making good choices, and then we have sometimes very disappointing failures. And, and what we see in Abram is this trusting God and marching out from his hometown and going to a land that God will show him, and then a real level of unbelief and failure. And what, but what we see in the midst of all of that is though Abraham, Abram uh, loses faith, falls into unbelief, God is yet faithful to his promises to his people. And he rescues Abram out of Egypt, right? That's, that's at the end of chapter 12, right there at the first verse of this chapter this morning. He comes up out of Egypt and he comes out prosperous. God has blessed him even in the midst of Abram's failing. God and his sovereignty and his power to do so blesses his people even though they make great errors and commit great sin that God is faithful to his people and faithful to his promises. So the start of chapter 13 now, Abram is called up out of Egypt. Now, I don't want to overplay the type and shadow. Some of you will really geek out on this and like it. I think it's incredible. Some of you may not be as impressed with this, but there's a pattern we begin to see developing here with the people of God. Famine, go to Egypt, and then they're called out of Egypt. Where Abram, famine in the land of promise, escapes to Egypt and then is delivered up out of Egypt with great prosperity. And we'll see it again even before we get out of Genesis where Jacob named Israel to escape famine through a series of really unfortunate events is will escape to Egypt to get rid of the, get out of the famine well they'll end up staying right and then the whole book of Exodus is about the people of God then being delivered out of Egypt and that's type and shadow I think Abraham maybe is a, is even a foreshadowing of that with the people of God which is ultimately a foreshadowing of Jesus himself who's going to be born, right, in Bethlehem. We celebrate it around Christmas time. And then to escape persecution from Herod, he goes to Egypt, right? Joseph has a dream. Go to Egypt to escape the persecution. They go. Herod kills every baby under two years old in Bethlehem. But then Herod dies. Joseph has another dream. And then Matthew quotes the prophet Hosea and, and, and attributes this directly to Jesus, that out of Egypt I've called my son. There's this incredible type and shadow going on of, of all throughout this narrative. And so we see in all of this a shadow of Jesus who escapes to Egypt, right, with this dream, and then comes out to enter into the promised land. And just like Jesus, when he comes out of that, uh, comes out of Egypt, right, and he grows up, He's then baptized there in the Gospel of Matthew. And the next thing we see is he's led into the wilderness with a temptation. There, there is something put in front of him that he has, is tested. And Jesus succeeds. The nation of Israel, they fail over and over again, right, in their wilderness testing. But Abraham here is a type and shadow. I think he really does succeed in a, in a testing here. It is a shining moment in the life of 
of Abram with this temptation that is put in front of him. As they leave Egypt, right, we just read the text. It's a narrative. It's pretty straightforward. I'm going to assume a lot here. You understood what kind of happened. They're very prosperous. Lot, who is his nephew, and Abram, we don't know if who's older than who or they're the same age or whatever. Big families back then. But Abram has got uh, sheep and gold and silver, livestock, silver and gold, and Lot has livestock and tents and herds, flock and herds and tents. They're both very prosperous. There's not enough land for both of them. What are we going to do? The herdsmen are fighting. Abram says, let's just divide our, the land is in front of us. Let's divide our land. You go your way and then I'll go the other way. And he gives Lot the choice of his land, right? A lot, what does he do? Verses five, uh, six and seven, no, verses down in verse nine and 10, down in verse 10. When this opportunity is given to Lot, what does he do? Lot lifts up his eyes. And now this, the ESV doesn't say this, but there's a, rep, there's a repetition there. He lifts up his eyes and he looks and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered. And then verse 11, so Lot chose for himself. There's this three times this very self-centered language is used that Lot he lifts up his eyes to what he, he, he looks for himself. He sees something good and he makes a choice for himself, right? Three times it's mentioned here. He sees something in his, that he likes. And in fact, scripture is clear that this land that Lot looks at and he likes, it is the better land. <laughs> it, it calls it like the garden of God, which is like, it's like Eden, I mean, this place is this, he, you, you look around and here's green, beautiful agricultural vegetation doing well. Uh, it looks good. And it, can, they compare it to the, um, the, right there in Egypt, right? And so you've got the, the delta from the Nile as it goes out and empties into the Mediterranean Sea. You should, it's fun to take out Google Earth and just look at Africa, follow the Nile, and then see where it spreads out. Everything's green and beautiful and lush in comparison to all the land outside of it. And so like that, Lot and Abram are standing and looking and here's this beautiful land. Abram says, you choose which way you wanna go, I'll go the opposite way. And Lot looks and sees at this beautiful land and like a no-brainer, he says, I want that. And Abram lets him go. He lets him take the better land, which is what Lot does. But there's a warning to see in the text. Did you catch it? The, the end of verse 10, there's, in the ESV, it's parenthetically, it's, it's in parenthesis, but it says that this looks beautiful when, well, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, there's some foreshadowing going on there. It's not even subtle foreshadowing. This is like in your face foreshadowing. This is before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And we learn there at the end of verse 13, we'll get to this later on in Genesis, but the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. So there's some real warning here of it looks like the better land. But this is before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. It's, it's in the region of all of this wickedness. And Lot chooses to go for it. The, for all of the apparent obvious choice, it was to select this better and more fertile land. It's actually not that great of a choice. <laughs> it's actually the wrong choice, which brings us to our first big application point is that those who walk by sight can be deceived. Those who walk by sight can be deceived. 
Not all that you see and think is best is truly what is best. It's very easy because we are corporeal beings. We live very much in this world, in this, you know, this very material world and life. It is very easy to begin to to believe this idea that what I see is obviously in my My interpretation of what I see is obviously the correct interpretation. But not all that you see and all that you think is best is truly what is best. This is a consistent and frequent temptation for humanity. We live by sight so much of the time, like all the time. Often this impulse, it's just plain survival. Like, I mean, if you see dark clouds... uh, you're at a ball game and it was just this, uh, was it just this Friday night, dark clouds coming and lightning showing up? I mean, there's, there's a kind of a decent impulse that when you see something, you should take action. Uh, that this is not good. It, there's a survival element to this. But, but many times, it's just simply the mechanism by which the enemy of our souls, which you have one, If you don't know this, there is someone who is an enemy of your soul who wants your ruin, who wants your destruction, who wants you to continue in your rebellion against God, who wants to ruin your life, and yes, sends you to hell with himself. There is an enemy of your soul. And oftentimes, all he really has to do is to take the thing you shouldn't have, dress it up real shiny and nice, and and you chase it. (laughs) That's all he has to do. Uh, in, In the same way that Eve, we've been dealing with this problem since the beginning. When Eve grabs the fruit, what does she do? She looks at it and she sees it's desirable and good for eating. And she says she walks by sight. This looks fine. I don't know what God's big deal is. Look at it. It's great. It's desirable for making one wise. And so she partakes of it. In the same way, Lot sees that this land is good to his eyes. And in this way, he is deceived to the dangers within them. He looks with his eyes, sees that it's good. And because he desires it, he, he, he easily gives in. He justifies it. This is the way to go. And he's deceived to the dangers within it. He looks, he sees, and he chooses for himself. Our service to ourself will be glad to help us find plenty of reasons why serving ourselves is the right choice. Looking around and seeing, there, there, that, is, that is what we will be glad to pursue. There is really a little bit or maybe even a whole lot of lot in us today. In fact, our culture has actually turned this impulse into a moral good. Authenticity is, the, is a chief good. Being true to yourself and your internal desires, justified by looking around and seeing and justifying, this looks good, this is the right way to go. My internal desires justified uh, as, as, a, as a chief good. Today, our culture likes to say that the only real moral wrong is the voices that would tell us that something we see and desire is wrong. If, if you see it and you desire it, it's your desire, it's your truth, you ought to chase it. And the only wrong is, is anyone who would say, that's really not good for you and you shouldn't chase it and you don't know what you're talking about. That's the only real transgression that is getting around in our culture. Now, there's a real hypocrisy with such a statement because literally everyone has some behaviors and decisions that are off limits. Even if it is the behavior that says, 
there are things that are off limits. There's, so the, there, everyone has categories of behavior that are off limits. And sometimes it's only saying anyone who would say things are off limits, those people, they're off limits. So everyone has areas and of, of behaviors that they deem as off limits. The truth is that, there, that the position... The truth is that the position is that position is morally wrong and ultimately a dead end street. To be a thinking, functioning human is to be, yes, uh, someone who has the functioning ability to consider a reality bigger than themselves and to make decisions upon those realities, not to just make decisions based upon our base impulses and desires. The very idea, the very reality of being imago dei, made in the image and likeness of God, is that he has made us thinking creatures, able to think about something bigger. We're able to relate. We're able to consider long-term consequences. Um, in contrast, I have a, a little dog. We love our little dog, Sylvie. She's great. She's a delight. She'll jump all over you if you come over to our house. We always walk her on a leash. And, and, and the reason why is not because um, if I call her name, she would stay with us. Uh, she would come, she stays around us. The reason why we have her on a leash is because if she sees a squirrel, she forgets everything else in the world. It doesn't matter how big the truck coming down the road is, all she sees is squirrel. <laughs> and so we have to, because she's not able to think, oh, um, there's something I'm interested in. Let me check and see if this is a right pursuit at this time for me. Uh, and, then, and then gauge my options. And then make, you know, not just be driven by my animal desires. She's not able to do that. In contrast, you, you no offense to my dog Sylvie, but you are in the image of God and are smarter than a dog. <laughs> and not to be governed, we are not to be governed by just our base impulses and base desires. It is a, a warning here to not be deceived by thinking that everything we look at and see as a desirable good is an actual good. And not everything we look at and see as a desirable good is actually an, a good. So then how do we combat that? I mean, so we could press on that more. I don't know that I need to press on that case that much. I think we kind of get the idea that there are things that look attractive that end up not being good for us. So then, but then how do we combat it? Like how does Abram, in the midst of this, like not be deceived into going to the land and, 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 and magnanimously, uh, was the words that come, like so many commentaries used magnanimity. Of, I don't know why they love that word for some. He's being magnanimous. He's being very generous to give Lot this ground. Why? How is he able to combat that? And how then ought we be able to combat these desires that we have for things that look and, and are convinced, are convince ourselves in our heads are actual goods? How do we combat that? And theologians have wrestled with this as long as we've been doing theology. How do we fight against our basic desires to chase what we ought not to chase? And usually the answer is this, lay down some law. You don't want to chase your base desires. Make some rules and stick to them. That's, the, that's what religion does. It says, you shouldn't do this. It's not good for you. Here are 15 rules to keep you from doing the things you ought not to do. Now obey the law. 
We're not going to actually kill your desire for it. It's there. And so we're just going to, we're going to just bury it under thousands of rules. And often that works for a while until it doesn't. The way that works out is that, you know, you have a desire for thing A. Um, you want it real bad. Thing B is the thing that you should do. So you make a rule against thing A, hoping that you'll do thing B, which you keep up until you break rule B and just go ahead and get thing A that you've desired all along. Because you, that desire eventually begins to just needle at you and pulls you away. You've done this in thousands of ways, you and those around you. I mean, very simply, uh, I don't know how many people, I used to know the statistic, but it's, it's been years old, but surveys of those pe people who take up diets throughout the year, time and time and time again, are going to reform their diet. They're going to drop sweets. Now, there's those of you who got, have such incredible willpower, I'm not talking to you, I guess, on this one. <laughs> but, but, you know, this, this desire for a sweet. So what you do is you make a rule against all sweets, and then you go for a week abiding by this rule. Maybe this is just too confessional. You go for a week <laughs> on this rule, and all of a sudden the package of Little Debbie's looks too good, and you, you, you crash and you eat a whole package of zebra cakes. Or I've heard people doing things like that. Like... <laughs> You make a rule which, which works for a while until it doesn't anymore. And so then what do you do? You guilt and shame. You go back under the diet, under the law. This time I'm really going to make it. And it works until it doesn't anymore. You just keep piling up the law. You need to exercise more. So you make plans with rules on I will work out. And then you sit around and you break the rules. You think I ought to love my neighbor. And I've got a rule that when I'm out in my front yard and I see my neighbor, I'm going to engage them in conversation. I'm going to be interested in their lives. I'm going to ask them thoughtful questions to give thoughtful responses. And then I get out in the yard and I'm tired and I'm, I'm annoyed and whatever. And I break the rules. L laws, laws eventually, are, they just wear out. They, they, this is, it is not, it is the answer we constantly run to. But it never really seems to work. And there's, we do this with more serious things. So I'm joking about little Debbies. But honestly, there are, there are more serious things we do this with as well. There are certain behaviors that are wrong outside of the context of a marital relationship. We make rules against those behaviors. And then we break them. When, in a moment of desire, our desire for those things, they grow too strong for us. We look at what we want, we see it as surprisingly attractive, and then we chase it. Because, well, I mean, look at it, it's, it's attractive, it's what I want, um, and yeah, the laws are fine, but not, not, not in comparison to my desires. Eventually, those break down, and laws fail us. The person in sexual sin, either physically or emotionally, either with real people or with images on their phones, or with just in their imagination. This person in sexual sin, either in their marriage or maybe even before they get married, this person caught in this sexual sin does so because there is a perceived and desirable good in front of them. I'm looking at this. I desire this. I want this. And no amount of laws, no amount of rules ultimately will end up winning the day. They, they'll, they'll end up failing. We need something more. We, we chase for the lesser goods of materialism, chasing for just happiness, having a good time, lubricating it with all sorts of substances to just try to find some sort of happiness. 
because we are chasing after this good. So then how do we combat then this drive for lesser goods? I argue you can only fight those desires with superior desires. We can only combat the drive for lesser goods with superior desires, with superior satisfactions. And I think we see a model for this in Abram. The opening of the chapter, right, he worships God. And then we see at the end of chapter 13, again, he worships God. It's bracketed in his worship of God. He's, he's grateful that God has delivered him out of Egypt and has not punished him for his sin with his wife, but has, in fact, blessed him and, and, and reaffirms his promise to him and, and his gratitude to his God for what he has done to him. He's found a superior satisfaction such that he doesn't have to fight for the best land against Lot but he's able to, to give into a superior satisfaction and to actually magnanimously offer to Lot something better than what he's going to get. He's able to take a back seat. This moment of self-giving, of preferring Lot, is couched in Abram's remembering and treasuring the God who made him and who rescued him. It's as if Abram has found a superior pleasure, seen for all that it really is, and it has liberated him to not chase after inferior desires. C.S. Lewis, in his essays on weight of, it's a little collection called The Weight of Glory, but he writes about the kids who make mud pies in the slum. And he talks about that it's actually our desires, it isn't that our desires are too strong, they're actually too weak. The problem of chasing lesser the things of this world is not that our desires are too strong. They're actually too weak. We are, C.S. Lewis says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. <laughs> Settling for these lesser, lesser pleasures, infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. You get the image. Everybody ever make mud pies? Like I had a sandbox out in the farm. It turned into just basically mud. And so that's what we, you made sand pies or mud pies. And, to, and, and this is all you know, like look at my glory. All I want to do all day is just make mud pies. It's so fun out there. Because I've never gone, I don't know, anywhere with like actual sand and water and fun and an adventure, you know, a park or something like that. You know, this, and, and like a kid just settling for insufficient or small pleasures. It is not that our desires are too strong. They're actually too weak. And they settle for the things of this world when infinite joy is what's offered to us. We just almost don't have time. <laughs> Second Samuel 19 this is a fascinating story. I'm just going to tell you. You can look it up when you get home. 2 Samuel 19, verses uh, 24 through 30. Is this Mephibosheth is this incredible, he's this weird figure, keeps showing up in the narrative of David. And he's Saul's, one of Saul's kids who is um, lame in his feet. And, and David is looking for someone in Saul's line to bless. And he finds Mephibosheth and he takes him out of his uh, just just a squalor of, of a condition of life and elevates him into the king's house, gives him a seat at the table. It's a, it's, a, it's a picture of the gospel. It's a phenomenal story. But at this point in 2 Samuel, David has been kicked out of the temple by his son Absalom. Big, long story. Don't have time for that. But he comes back from being exiled out of his kingdom. He comes back into the temple and he's addressing all the people who didn't follow him who are with Absalom, the guy who was served him, his son. They're with Absalom and not him. And he's asking, 
you know, why didn't you support me? Why were you against me? And it comes to Mephibosheth and he brings him in, verse 26, you know, why did you not go with me? He answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. He said, I'll answer, I'll saddle a donkey for myself, ride on it and go with the king. He basically was abandoned. He had no control being disabled. He wasn't able to follow the king. So verse 27, Mephibosheth says, he has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king, but my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore whatever seems good to you. My Lord, the King is like the angel of God. Do whatever you want. 28, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord, the King. But you set your servant, speaking of himself, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right then do I have to cry to the King? So David says, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide this land. He's like, I'll give you half. I'll be gracious and I'll give you half. And Mephibosheth answers, says to the king, oh, let him take it all. I don't, let him take it all. Since my Lord, the king has come safely home. And it's this incredible understanding that this lame man has offered to get half of this land that is being split and given to him. And he's like, you know what? This, this, although that's an attractive offer, give it all away to Ziba. I have such great joy that I have my king back that I can give it all away. I need nothing more. I have my king here with me. There's this incredible, what empowers Mephibosheth not to be controlled by his desire for the fading things of this world is that he has a greater desire and enjoyment of the things already given to him by the king. And I think that's the same thing we see with Abram here. He's just been rescued by Yahweh in spite of his own sin. And now he's filled with trust and able to be generous with the things of this world because he knows that God will take care of him and ultimately he knows he will not be disappointed. It's the mindset of Christ himself. We read in Philippians chapter two, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves. What is the, what's the mind? To look into the interest of others, not to yourself. How can you prefer others over yourself? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. But Jesus, he empties himself takes the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. The Christian worldview, the people of God, it's, it's upside down. It's, it's able to say, though this world, and I look at it and it is so appealing and so desirable, I'm able to say, I prefer others. I, I, I want to see others do well. My, I am so satisfied. And when it comes to the things of the world that actually will drag us away from God, we're able to fight those desires, not by creating law, but by remembering greater desires. I have a greater desire for my king. So where does that leave us? Well, we live in a world driven by competition, a world obsessed and radically committed to personal autonomy, individual rights and expression, a world where the primary justification to get what we want, this is what I deserve, is marketed as a justifi justifiable under almost any circumstance. But Christ calls us to something higher. The gospel 
calls us to something higher. The gospel calls us to repent. Those desires, they're there. (laughs) For all sorts of shiny things the world holds out to us, they're there. All these little idols popping up for us, they're there. The gospel calls us not to make laws to keep us from them, to confess them, to repent, to say, God, this is, this is where my heart is going and I, I want to turn from it. I want to change my mind on, on regards to these things of this world. Repent and then look upon Christ, who the, the judgment that we deserve for that idolatrous pursuit of the things of the world, Christ took that punishment upon himself. He lives the righteous life we should have lived, dies the death that we deserve, so that every one of us in this, morning, in this room this morning who have chased a thousand lesser things can confess, God, I've chased a thousand lesser things. And for that, I actually deserve your condemnation. But in love, you sent your son who never chased a lesser thing, always lived for your glory, earned your righteous decree, and yet suffered my penalty so that this morning I could turn from those lesser desires, look to Christ, trust him in his work on the cross, who rose from the dead in victory over those lesser things. Christ calls us to something higher. In Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that in Christ we have actually become a new creation, given a new desire. Christ calls us to a higher joy, one that is found in him alone. We aren't denying the the driver of personal happiness. Often we're painted that way, we're painted that way, right? The world wants just wants to be happy. And we gather on a Sunday morning and we try to find ways to make sure you don't chase happiness. We don't want you happy, we want you obedient. That's actually not that's not the picture of scripture. We want you to chase a higher happiness. We want your eternal happiness. We're calling you to a higher joy, one that is found in Christ alone. We aren't denying the driver of personal happiness, but going farther by saying that you are made by God for God. You have a specific purpose that will not be fulfilled outside of him, no matter your effort of searching. In a world driven by competition, a quote from a guy that I, an influencer that I like, but I won't mention, he says this, in a world driven by competition, how refreshing it is to lose ourselves in Christ and win everything. How refreshing it is to lose ourselves in Christ and yet win everything. So the closing question for us is simply this, through what means are we seeking our ultimate satisfaction? How fooled are we by looking at the desires that flash before us in this fleeting world? Let's ask God for eyes to see him for the treasure that he is, for the conviction to stop chasing all that opposes him and ruins us, and for hearts that are restless until they find their rest in him. Let's pray. God, would you give us these eyes? Father, you are not unaware of our (laughs) mortal, sinful condition. You are not unaware Christ even put on flesh and lived in this world and succeeded at defeating every temptation. You're not unaware of the shininess of the sinfulness of this world. You're not unaware of it. 
So, Father, why should we pretend? God, we don't want to pretend, but we want to, in this place this morning, even right now, confess, God, here's, here's the thing I've been chasing to find my happiness when all along, and, and denying that ultimately that happiness is found in you. Father, I, I want to turn from that. Forgive me. God, I know I deserve judgment for my rebellion against you and chasing things beside you, but I rejoice this morning in Christ. God, may that be the heartbeat of everyone in this room this morning, turning from sin, trusting in Christ for our ultimate joy in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.